0: Would be nigh impossible to overstate how grateful I am for our worship leaders. Uh, every, every single week that I walk in here, it doesn't matter who's leading. Um, our men put so much time and energy and prayer and creativity into what we do every Sunday morning. And though the styles vary greatly in terms, you know, from, from worship leader to worship leader, uh, each one of them brings a wisdom and a humility and a love for the Lord that is tangible. And I hope sometime that you take the time to thank our worship leaders for the work that they do. And also our musicians, uh, Trish, uh, Tyler, both of you, just thank you so much for the work that you did this morning in leading us. Just really grateful to be here with you. I'd like to begin our time together this morning by asking a question. And here's the question. Which is easier, to fight or to surrender? Now right away you're thinking, and probably you're thinking, well Matt, you haven't given me enough information to know how to answer that question. Because you could be asking the question from the perspective of Our physicality our physical bodies so if I'm asking the question from a physical perspective you might answer the question and say well if you're asking the question from a physical perspective if I choose to surrender I would burn fewer calories I would avoid the possibility of being injured in the battle and so from that perspective it might be easier to surrender but if I'm asking the question from an emotional perspective, you might respond and say, well, if I, if, I, if I surrender, I have to lay down my pride. And in doing so, I'm admitting failure or weakness. And I'm giving my opponent the opportunity to say that he prevailed over me. And so that would be an assault against my pride. So from that perspective, it might be easier to surrender. And maybe I would choose to fight. So am I asking the question from the perspective of our physical bodies and health? Or am I asking the question from an emotional standpoint? Actually, neither. I'm asking the question from the point of view of someone who's wondering about their long-term good. Which is easier, to fight or to surrender? Well, it depends. It depends on which option is going to produce the best long-term benefit for me. All of this drives down to a question that lies beneath all these questions, which is, what do we believe about the person to whom we're being asked surrender? Who am I being asked to surrender to? If I believe that the intentions of the person I'm being asked to surrender to will make my life unbearable, I will most certainly choose to fight and not surrender. But if I believe the person I'm being asked to surrender to greatly desires that I would flourish, and they have both the resources and the character to bring about that flourishing, it would be easier to surrender, wouldn't it? So which is easier, to fight or to surrender? Well, it really depends on the character and the intentions of the person to whom I'm being asked to surrender. Would you pray with me as we begin? There's so many things, Father in heaven, that as we look at the kingdom of God are counterintuitive to us. If we're to become great in your kingdom, you would tell us get on your knees and serve. If we would desire to truly live, you would tell us pick up your cross and die. If we would desire to flourish and truly live, you would say to us, surrender. As we look at your word this morning, we pray that you give us eyes to see what you have for us here. Would your spirit visit us in such a way that we will capture things this morning that we would miss if your spirit were not here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the question. What is the character, what are the long-term intentions of the person to whom I'm being asked to surrender? You and I will never willingly surrender to someone if we believe that person has ill intent against us. is going to make our lives unbearable. Would you open with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8. We'll be picking up this morning in verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. So I've been asking you a question this morning, which is easier, to fight Or to surrender. And I'm hoping that as we read that passage, you were able to identify the two authorities that influence us in our lives and are looking for us to surrender. You saw the sinful nature or the flesh, which is that part of you and I that we were born into in the most natural of ways. We were each born with a sinful nature because we were born to our first parents, Adam and Eve, and we are born to our immediate parents, and we inherit that sinful nature in the most natural way. The Spirit here is referring to the Holy Spirit. This is the same Spirit that's hovering over the waters as creation is taking place. This is the same Spirit who lifts Jesus up from the grave when He is resurrected. It's the same Spirit that appears in Acts chapter 2 and comes upon the disciples at Pentecost same spirit you and i are tempted to surrender to the sinful nature but we're obligated because of what jesus did in purchasing our salvation on the cross we're obligated to surrender to the holy spirit the first thing i'd like to show you is where the concept of surrendering comes as you as we read the text likely you noticed the word surrender doesn't appear in the text That we just read, and I'd like to argue that it's all throughout the text. Clyde, if I could have that first slide so that you can see it. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led, By the Spirit of God or sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And so in verse 12 and 13, Paul uses words like, live according to. Live according to the sinful nature simply means to somehow submit myself to the authority and desire of that authority. And so, if I'm living according to the sinful nature, I'm bending under the authority and the will of that nature. In other words, I'm surrendering. Look at verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 13 and 14. He says, by the Spirit, or led by the Spirit of God. Again, if I'm Led by God's Spirit, I'm surrendering to that Spirit. I'm bending to that authority. In verse 15, he says, we didn't receive a Spirit that makes us a slave again. A slave is a person who is bent and serving beneath authority. Paul is building on the same idea that he spoke about back in chapter 6. Clyde, if I can have that next slide. We see the same principles in play here. He says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. Do you see the same concepts, the same ideas developing back here in chapter 6? In verse 12, sin wants to reign. Sin demands obedience. Do you see how in verse 13 Paul is talking about offering our bodies and offering ourselves. We're bending under authority. Do you see in verse 14 how sin wants to be a master with you bent down beneath? The concept of submitting or surrendering runs throughout these passages, even though you don't see the words printed there. Thank you, Clyde. When I spoke on Romans 8 back in January. And in the paragraph that we're discussing this morning, Paul makes the very strong case that surrender to the sinful nature or to the flesh can do nothing but produce death. Look back in our passage at verse 12. He says, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. Here's what I know about most of you in this room. Most of you in this room who've spent time reading the Bible, you knew that before I read it this morning. You know biblically. You know theologically that submission to the sinful nature can do nothing other than produce death. You know that. So let me ask our question again. Which is easier, to fight against the sinful nature or to surrender to the sinful nature? I would argue this morning that for all of us, and interestingly enough, even for the Apostle Paul back in chapter 7, even though we intellectually we know that submission to the sinful nature can only produce death, it's easier for us to surrender to the sinful nature than it is to fight against the sinful nature. Why is that? Simply this. Knowing That the sinful nature can produce death and believing that the sinful nature produces only death are two very different things. The sinful nature is deceptive, it promises things that it can't deliver, and you know this to be true. Sometimes those lies sound like this You can be your own God, you can be in control of your situation. You can finally be fulfilled. It's only a little taste. You can be godly tomorrow. Nobody will know. Stolen water is sweet. It's pointless to resist. You know you're going to give in at some point. When you and I surrender to the sinful nature, it's often because we believe lies like these. On the one hand, we know that the sinful nature can produce only death. On the other hand, it's real easy to believe those lies because they're awfully, awfully attractive. We actually believe that by submitting to the sinful nature, we're going to live. Raising my voice to my wife and winning an argument feels really good. When I win the argument, I feel like I'm living. Don't you? There's that little beat that sin puts out in front of us that says, if you live into this sin, you're actually going to live. And you know what that feels like. But the dividends of winning an argument are usually really short-lived. And Paul says that our surrender to the sinful nature produces death. If If you're a Christian... You know that to be true, especially if you submitted to the sinful nature over some period of time. That sin, that that submission to the sinful nature has produced death in you. Here's what that death has looked like. You've lost your taste for worship. You come into the sanctuary on a Sunday morning and the hymns just don't draw you up. And the prayers seem wooden and distant. And you walk away from a worship service and you think to yourself, well, that worship leader wasn't very good this morning. I really didn't feel like God was even in the room this morning. When we submit to the sinful nature, that's where our hearts land. Prayer becomes difficult. There's nothing drawing us to have a conversation with our Heavenly Father when we're over here submitting to the sinful nature. Scripture becomes distant. You open your Bible and you think, well, I'm supposed to have my quiet time and so you sit down and you read Scripture. And there's nothing in your heart that's warmed at all. There's no change in perspective. You're not re-centered into the kingdom of God like you want to be, like you need to be. There's death. Death. Isn't it true that when we're submitting to the sinful nature, being around godly people becomes difficult? They're always shining this light. And isn't that kind of annoying? People with the Holy Spirit living in them are joyful. Oh, that joy is so off-putting. Why is she so happy all the time? God seems distant. If you're submitting to the sinful nature, you have experienced guilt. Likely you have experienced condemnation, fear. If you have submitted to the sinful nature over a period of time, it's very likely that you have questioned your own salvation. Am I really a Christian? It's a question worth asking. This is what death looks like. If a person continues down a path like this without repenting, they will prove by their lack of repentance they never truly belong to the Lord Jesus Christ at all. It really is impossible to belong to Jesus and continue in a pattern of perpetual resistance to the Holy Spirit. But Paul's writing to people he hopes and believes are true believers. And so he spends the rest of our paragraph talking about what it looks like to surrender to the Holy Spirit. So look at verse 13, the second half. But, but, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. I've entitled this sermon, We Live by Surrendering, and I've done so because of this verse. There is a would-be master who greatly desires our surrender. It's the nature that we're born with, but we don't kill that sinful nature by engaging it in fleshly ways, in hand-to-hand combat. That's what we do when we engage the sinful nature by trying to obey the law. Can you picture it? You've done this. I'll bet you've done this. Don't eat the chocolate. Matt, do not eat the chocolate. Don't look at the chocolate. I'm not going I'm not going to I will not look at the cho- I will not look at the chocolate. I'm not going to think about chocolate. Where does that lead you? I got to have the chocolate. Do you understand that that's what we do when we return to the law and we try to put the sinful nature to death by keeping rules? That's keeping the law. And it fails constantly. You've done it, I've done it. And whether it's now or an hour from now, we end up failing. Why? Because we're trying to do spiritual battle in physical ways. This isn't a physical battle. This is a spiritual battle. And it's law-keeping. It will fail. Paul's been working hard all through the book of Romans to free us from the law in order to show us just how liberating it is to find life by surrendering to the Holy Spirit. If the sinful nature is to be put to death in the life of a Christian, there's only one way for that work to be accomplished. The Christian must learn to live in greater and greater surrender to the Holy Spirit. The verses that we're about to consider, I believe, are the most important thing a Christian needs to know in order to experience the kinds of lives that the Holy Spirit offers us. Let me say this a different way. Verses 14 and 17, I believe, are the most important verses in the New Testament for a Christian who truly desires to live. This is really important stuff. Verse 14, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you're expecting Paul to tell you to go do something in this paragraph, you're going to be thrown off. Paul isn't going to tell us to go do something. He's redefining for us what it means to actually live. If the sinful nature can produce only death, and if the Holy Spirit produces only life, what does that life look like? Well, he begins in 14 by telling us if we're led by the Spirit of God, we're considered God's children. The Spirit's leadership of us confirms our identity. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Living out of the strength of that identity becomes the very thing that renders the sinful nature dead. It's the very thing that drains the sinful nature of all its influence. So you'll remember a couple of the lies that I just mentioned earlier. A moment ago, I'll bet you've heard these. It's pointless to resist. You know that you're going to give up at some point, and when you give up, it's then that you'll actually be fulfilled. That's what the sinful nature says. If you and I are living into our identities as sons and daughters of our most high king. When our sinful nature starts whispering in the ear, you need to surrender at some point. Here's how you can respond. You can say to your sinful nature, how dare you? How dare you tell me that I need to surrender to you and that I will surrender to you? Do you not know That the same spirit is living in me who lifted Jesus Christ from the dead. I literally have creational power living within me. So sinful nature, how dare you lie to me and tell me I must surrender to you. Furthermore, because I'm a child of the Most High King, I have an inheritance kept in heaven for me that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Sinful nature. What could you possibly offer me that could fulfill me in a way that I can't be fulfilled if I'm living as a child of God? What am I doing? I'm simply recognizing the truth, recognizing the lie. And speaking the truth of my identity in Christ to that lie. It's what the Holy Spirit equips us to do when he says, You are a child of the Most High King. That's what that identity does for us. Your identity becomes an incredibly powerful weapon. And with it you can render the sinful nature powerless. The benefits of being a child of your creator so eclipse anything the sinful nature can offer you that if we're living like that, putting that sinful nature to death can actually become an easy thing to do. This is what the Holy Spirit does for you. He confirms your identity as a child of God and that confirmation brings with it a confidence and peace that is ridiculously precious. When Paul says that the Spirit produces life in us, he's raising our eyes to what it truly means to live. We begin living as sons and daughters instead of bending down to the things that we used to be slaves to. Look at verse 15. He says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, its identity again. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, The presence of the Holy Spirit in your life gives you the ability to relate to your Creator in a way that people who do not have the Holy Spirit cannot relate to their Creator. Absolutely impossible. You and I are not only permitted, but we're invited to refer to our Creator as Abba. And I'd like to share with you a little bit about what that name means. This is from James Boyce. Boyce writes, A number of their early Christian fathers, and then he names several, who came from Antioch where Aramaic was spoken and who probably had Aramaic-speaking nurses and unanimously testified that Abba was the address of small children to their fathers. The Talmud confirms this when it says that when a child is weaned, it learns to say Abba and Ema, that is daddy and mommy. So this is what Abba really means daddy. To a Jewish mind, a prayer addressing God as daddy would not only have been improper, it would have been irreverent to the highest degree. Yet this is what Jesus said in his prayers and quite naturally stuck in the minds of the disciples. It was something very unique when Jesus taught his disciples to call God daddy. Did you know that? Did you know that for a person who grew up with the Old Testament as their context, the concept of referring to the Creator as Abba would have been exceptionally foreign for a Jewish mind. They wouldn't have been able to do it. In our world today, people without the Holy Spirit typically make one of two mistakes as they think about who God is. There are people in our world who think about our Creator as being omnipotent, eternal, holy, just, terrifying. If you have a friend who's a Muslim, it's very likely that they've grown up with that view of God. God is terrifying. God is a just judge. And someday I will have to stand before this just judge. Interestingly, the Muslims got something right. Is it true that God is holy and just and all-powerful and a judge? Yeah, it's absolutely true. But the Muslims have missed out on the reality that because Jesus died on the cross, we can approach God in a different way. There's another group of people in in our world today, also without the Holy Spirit, and they think about God. And they tend to conceive that God is this big, fuzzy, Kind, gentle grandfather in the sky who is always kind and gentle and benevolent and always pours good things into the lives of all people because he loves everyone. Interestingly, they got something right. You know from First John chapter 4 that the scripture says that God is love. He identifies himself as love. But that's not all he is. A person who thinks that God is this big fuzzy grandfather in the sky who will never judge his children and loves everyone equally doesn't understand that God is also holy and just and all-powerful and he is a judge and he is going to judge people. And so they miss that. If the Holy Spirit is living in you, he's testifying constantly that God is both... He truly is holy and just and all powerful, but he's simultaneously full of mercy and grace. The fact that God is both is the very thing that produces such love in Christians. If the Holy Spirit is in you, you can see your Creator simultaneously as all powerful and gracious, as a judge and yet forgiving. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And he allows you to refer to your heavenly father, to the creator God as Abba, which should be a wonder to us. Now, what does that truth do for you in terms of putting the sinful nature to death? I'd like to invite Andrew and Ava, Ava to come to the platform here for a moment. Andrew is in my small group and he's part of the equation of my small group that makes my small group not small. All right, go for it. Are there any of you in the sanctuary today that would like to come to this platform and attempt to take Ava out of Andrew's arms? If you and know I truly learn to view ourselves as wrapped up in God's protection the way Ava is, it will do something for us. The Bible teaches us that it is love that casts out fear. You see the principle on display right here. When the sinful nature is lying to me and saying, Matt, all you are is a sinner. And you should expect ju- judge- judgment. you should expect condemnation when the sinful nature is coming coming at that way, in that way, at me. Here's what I can say: Do you see the arms that are wrapped around me? How dare you threaten me with condemnation when I am loved like this? Question. How alive is Ava right now? What Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8, he's trying to lift our eyes and say, Beloved, this is life. You and I are wrapped up in this fashion, and that wrapping up, that love, that protection, that security that we have because of who we are in Christ. On the lap of our Abba is the thing that puts the sinful nature to death. Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming up. The sinful nature is put to death as the Holy Spirit confirms that daddy and child relationship in us. And apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, it's impossible to actually have that kind of security. Look at verse 16. Paul writes, "...the Spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are God's children." Perhaps you've wondered, how does the Holy Spirit testify with my spirit that I'm a child of God? Well, ten months ago, back in January, I was speaking from the paragraph before our paragraph, but I referenced verse 16 here. Back in January, I gave you a little litmus test of questions that you can ask yourself to determine, is the Holy Spirit testifying with my spirit that I'm a child of God? I'm going to give them to you again. I think it's worth repeating because at least in my life, these precise questions have been questions that have helped me to find a peace when I'm doubting my salvation. Yes, a pastor can doubt his salvation. Question number one, do I pray frequently when no one else is watching? Am I constantly having a conversation that's going on between myself and heaven? I'm driving in my truck. I'm by myself. There's nobody to see me. Am I praying? If you're a person who's having a constant conversation with heaven, how would you explain that behavior if the Holy Spirit were not living in your heart? Because here's what you know. If the Holy Spirit is not prompting you to move toward God, you know that you won't. Question number two, does scripture warm my heart? When I open the Bible and I read personally, or if I'm in a Bible study, is my heart drawn up and my perspective changed? Does does the Word of God actually serve as a lens through which I'm interpreting everything that's taking place around me? Here's what you know. This book is a dead book if the Holy Spirit is not living in a person's heart. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, these are just words, these are just histories and lists and rules and regulations, and they're not going to move you. But if you have the Holy Spirit, how would you explain your heart warming when the Word of God is being preached if the Holy Spirit were not living in your heart? Number three, are there gifts that God has given you that you're now using for the building up of the body around you? Maybe you would say, you know, God's given me the gift of encouragement. And I love to catch people doing things right. And when I do, I really try to go to them and say, you know, when you do X, Y, Z, the people around you are almost always built up. I really want you to fan that into flame. As you've encouraged people, have you seen those people fan those gifts that God's given them and fan those in the flame and they continue to grow? Maybe you're a person who plays an instrument and sometimes you help us in our worship services to worship and maybe after a worship service someone comes up to you and they say you know when you play your flute when you play your violin it so helps me to be able to worship thank you for using your gift in service because I am helped by it how would you explain that building up the body if the Holy Spirit weren't present and working these next two are very profound Test number four, has there been somebody in your life who has wounded you very, very deeply? The offense was so costly, and maybe it took you months or maybe it took you years, but at some point you were able to forgive that person. You were able to release that person from any need to provide a pound of flesh to pay you back for the offense. Do you recognize how supernatural a thing it is to forgive when you have been deeply wounded? If you've forgiven someone like that, how would you explain that if the Holy Spirit wasn't active? Number five, has God given you the ability to love someone that you find exceedingly frustrating and just grates on your personality? Has God given you a brotherly affection for someone who tends to, by nature, just rub you in the wrong way? How would you explain that? If the Holy Spirit were not present in your life, dear ones, these are all ways in which the Holy Spirit testifies with your spirit and confirms your identity as a child of God. If and when you're tempted to wonder, am I really a Christian? Am I really a believer because I struggle with my sinful nature? These are really good questions to ask to start to answer that question. I'm going to give you a final one, but this one comes with a warning because it's much more subjective. Do you ever have the very real sense that God is near to you? That He's pleased with you? That when He takes your name on His lips, there's a smile on His face? Do you ever have a very real sense that when you're worshiping, either privately or corporately, that the Lord is drawn near you and you can sense His nearness to you? Again, again, I would say, this is a very real thing. But we need to use caution as we think about it because it involves our emotions and our experiences and those kind of things tend to do this. But it's still a very real thing. There are many ways the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirits that we're God's children. And when, you recognizes, when you're recognizing evidences like these taking place, you have to look at it and say, the Holy Spirit is here and He's working. Now, before we look at verse 17, I'd like to remind you of our question. Which is easier, to fight or to surrender? And remember that that question drove us down to a deeper question. What do we believe about the character and the intentions of the person we're being asked to surrender to? So what are the, what's the character and what are the intentions of the Holy Spirit as he relates to Christians? What has Paul shown us? Well, he's shown us that surrender to the Holy Spirit produces life. It's life-giving. In verses 14 to 16, he has emphasized the new identities that are ours in Jesus Christ. And as we come to 17, he's going to show us a benefit that comes along with that new identity. And this benefit also serves as a weapon. Verse 17. Now... If we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. Well, what is an heir? An heir simply is a person who's going to inherit something from someone else. And so someday when Cindy and I pass away, our children will inherit whatever earthly wealth we have accumulated over these years of life. So they are heirs. Interesting, Paul says here that we become heirs of God. We actually become heirs of a person. What's it like to inherit a person? Well, the best I can do with it is to think back to when Cindy and I were falling in love back in in the mid-1980s. I remember meeting her. And I remember many of the things that I just loved about her. I loved her eyes. I loved the fact that in the summertime when she was outside in the sun and her her skin was getting tanned, that the freckles would just multiply on her cheeks, and I loved her freckles. I loved her laugh. I loved her penchant for adventuring. When we were dating we would we would go hiking and rock climbing and spelunking and kayaking all that high adventure stuff she absolutely loved and downhill skiing we still love that and i loved that about her in the spring of 1991 i got to call Cindy my wife my wife i got to inherit all that beauty all that wisdom All that love of the Lord, all those shared interests, all those things became mine because she was my wife. If you are a child of God, you inherit a person. He is the most attractive person you will ever see. And he is the fountain of every beauty that you have ever laid your eyes on. He's the most stimulating conversation you'll ever have. I mean, think about this. He never had a beginning. He's never going to end. Our God sees events that took place a thousand years ago as if they're happening right now. He sees events that will happen a thousand years in the future as if they're taking place right now. What does that mean? It means our God lives in one eternal present moment. Can you imagine sitting down and having a conversation with him? You inherit that. He invented the tastes and the textures of the foods that you find most irresistible. He's the most creative, most powerful, most musical, most devoted, and wisest person you will ever meet. And the Bible says that if you're in Christ, he is possessive. You're God. You inherit him. Think about how many times over and over and over you've read in Scripture where the Bible says, I will be your God. I will be their God. It's possessive. I will be their God and they will be my people. There's a possession there. Paul also says that we are co-heirs with Christ himself. And that we'll share in his glory. I don't have time this morning to unpack that co-heirs with Christ portion. But these become the very things that we use as weapons to put our sinful nature to death. How do we do that? I'd like you to imagine for a moment it's a Friday evening. It's a Friday evening after a really frustrating week. You've had a whole week of setbacks and frustrations. You're ready to pull your hair out. And you decide tonight... We're going out for steak. And we're going all in on dinner, all the way from appetizer to dessert. And so you go to your favorite steakhouse, you sit down, and here's what you do. You say, I'm going to take the French onion soup. You know the kind that's got like a pound of cheese melted on top? And I'm going to get the prime rib, the big one. And yes, I want that dollop of whipped butter and chives and parsley on top. Why do you need, everybody, anybody wonder why they put butter on steak? Do you really need to do that? But they do. Steak fries, and I don't know what you put on your steak fries, but if you haven't tried it, you need to try that chunky blue cheese dressing. I know some of you guys are ketchup fans. Mm. Mm. For dessert, peanut butter pie with a graham cracker crust and a, and, and, and a cup of coffee to go with it. And so you push your chair back after dinner and you lean back and you just do one of these. And it's so satisfying. Now, you're driving home from having had a dinner like that and you pass a Rita's water ice. How tempted are you? Want to stop in and get some frozen sugar water that's ground up in a little cone? woo No, why? Because the satisfaction that you're enjoying from having that steak dinner so eclipses anything you can get at Rita's. You don't even look at the sign when you drive by. Right? Paul's urging us to put our sinful nature to death, not by keeping the law, but by surrendering to the Holy Spirit. If you and I will never surrender to someone unless we believe that the person to whom we're surrendering has both good character and the intent to bring about that good. Do you see how this is different than the law? This is not... Don't look at the water ice. I'm not going to look at the water ice. I'm not going to think about water ice. This is, why would I think about water ice? Because I just had a steak dinner. That's how our identity, that's how our inheritance becomes a weapon that completely renders the sinful nature powerless. Rita's is powerless if you've just had prime rib, right? Right? Throughout the paragraph we've been considering, Paul has been demonstrating how the Holy Spirit has both the character and intent of providing us with the kinds of things which are for us the very essence of life itself. So, for us, which is easier, to fight or to surrender? It's difficult to tempt a person who's found their greatest desires fulfilled. If you've eaten a steak dinner, Water, ice is hardly tempting. Would you think about these things for a few moments? And I'll close this in just a minute. Would you stand to receive the benediction? And now may the love of the God who has invited us to climb up into his lap and refer to him as Abba. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who, through his death on the cross made it possible for us to refer to him in that way. And may the confirming presence of the Holy Spirit, who teaches us and testifies with our spirits that these things are true, be with every true believer in this room. Amen.